Um, the scriptures that they had at the time had predicted that a Christ would come. They had predicted and they were given by God to tell people that one day a Savior would come and would rescue God's people. And the people wanted that Savior to come. There was almost this universal longing for someone to come and to save them and rescue them in a way that made them powerful, rescue them in a way that showed that their agenda was right, that they were right politically, that they were right people, that everybody else was wrong. And when Jesus came on the scene, it became very clear very quickly that they weren't able to put him in a box And he wasn't there to further any one political agenda. He wasn't there to make them great. He was there with purposes that were all his own. And when people heard that, when they saw that, when they saw that he came with a different kind of power and authority than they expected the Messiah to come with, they decided that they needed to get rid of him. They wanted to be saved. They wanted to be blessed. But they didn't want a Messiah who would come and ask them to change anything about their lives. So they're trying to trap him and scrutinize him and discredit him. And so far, Jesus has blocked every punch that they've thrown at him. They haven't been able to land one. They haven't been able to find any guilt or find anything wrong with him. And so now Jesus turns the tables and he goes on the offensive and he starts to question them. And he starts to expose in all these different groups that they are the ones who are frauds. They are the ones who don't have authority and that he's the one with authority. And yes, he's there to save them. But he'll save them on his terms because he's not just the the God that they can put in a box, but he's a savior. He's the Messiah. He's the true Lord of all. And so in the process here, in Jesus' interaction with these people, he shows us an awful lot of what true Christianity is, and he exposes an alternative to true Christianity that's everywhere. Um, I know that we've got a lot of guests with us today, and, and it's important because a lot of times if you look at Christianity from the outside— You think that it's one thing, but pretty often what you think it is is actually a false version of the real thing. It's it's a false Christianity that masquerades as the real thing. And so so here comes Jesus showing what the real thing is and exposing the frauds around him so that we could see what it really is to really follow Jesus. So Mark 12, verse 35, uh, let's pray and jump in. Uh, Jesus, we do ask that you would open our eyes this morning. Uh, help us to see you in the scriptures here. Uh, Lord, we, we, um, we tend to pretend. We tend to, to wear cloaks and hide. We tend to masquerade. And Lord, I just pray that you would strip all of that down and help us to see you for who you are. Uh, Lord, then help us to see ourselves in the light of who you are and help us to turn to you and trust you. Uh, Lord, we, we're asking you to do a miraculous work on our hearts as we look at your word this morning, a work that only your spirit can do. So we, we pray that your spirit will be working um, through the sword of your spirit, which is the word of God, as we hear it this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Um, so, so Mark 12, verse 35, and it says, And Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus comes and he poses this theological question for them. Um, The Old Testament, the the Hebrew scriptures that were given by God, had predicted that the Messiah, the chosen one, the king to end all kings, would come from the line of David. So so the Messiah would be a descendant of the great king David. Um, Even in places in Mark, we've seen where Jesus is called the son of David. So he was definitely supposed to come from David's line. Um, Now, in their culture, you gave a high degree of honor to your ancestors, uh, the people who had gone before you, to where you would call your father things like sir 
or master or lord. Um, your grandfather, the same thing. Your great-great-grandfather, the same thing. They had a culture where you deferred to the older people. The older people were the wisest. The older people were the ones whose word carried the most weight. They were the people who had the most authority. And so Jesus comes and he says there's this strange place in the Bible where David calls this descendant of his Lord. And that was completely out of place in their culture. I mean, we have a culture that's really the opposite today, where you watch our TV shows and people who are elderly are treated like the crazy people, um, where, where you see older people on TV shows and they're all kind of the Abraham Simpson crazy, uh, they, they're going to say something and it's just going to be nuts. We know that's what's going to come from somebody older on our TV shows. But then we have this idea that you get wisdom when you get your driver's license and it all starts to leak from there. So, so we don't believe that there's wisdom in the elderly. We think the most wisdom there is is to be found in the Justin Bieber Twitter feed. And, um, and that's where we'll really learn what life is all about from this little kid who's really got everything figured out. Um, we've reversed it. But in their culture, they said if you were older, you had wisdom. We listened to the, older, the elders. We honored the elders. And Jesus says that, that's the way it should be. But listen to what David said in Psalm 110. And Jesus quotes this psalm. We'll just put it up on the screen here. Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So here's David, and he's talking about this great ruler that will come from his line, but he calls him Lord. That was never done in their culture. You would never call your great-great-great-grandson Lord unless there was something totally unique about him. And the teaching of the Bible is that Jesus Christ definitely was the one who was to come. He was the chosen one. He's the one who came from the line of David. He is the king to end all kings. He was the one that the scriptures had talked about, but he was also David's Lord. And the reason is because Jesus didn't just come from the line of David. He has always been around. Uh, In John 1.14, it says this. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So Jesus Christ is the one who came after these great men of the faith in the past, but he was before them. He's preexistent. He's God. He's always been around. Colossians 1.17 says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is a man, but he's not just like any other man. He's also God, and he has always been around. And so when Jesus starts teaching and he starts saying that this guy's going to come from David's line, but he's going to be more than just a great-great-grandson of David, he's going to be the Lord because he's always been around, it says that the crowds of people heard what he was saying, and they heard him gladly. So they hear this, and this for them is this occasion of joy. The people who didn't have this agenda, who didn't need a Messiah to come and make them great, who didn't want to be proven right politically, who didn't want to get rich, they just knew that they needed a Savior to come. When they heard Jesus speaking, they heard him gladly. They said, he's the one. This is the one that we've been waiting for, and the truth is, that was true for them is true for us, that Jesus Christ is the one that we've been waiting for. 
Now, this is so important because sometimes we think that Christianity is just a system of morals, and Christianity does carry with it a moral system. Sometimes we think Christianity is just a set of rituals that we go through or a way that we worship, and the ways that we worship are affected by Christianity. But at the very heart of Christianity is not our morality, not our rules, not our laws, not even the way that we worship. At the very heart of our faith is Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ the Lord? The person and work of Jesus is what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about the things that we do, but it's about him and what he came to do. Christianity, true Christianity, is all about Jesus. And this is good news for us. Because down in our hearts, we want this to be true. Uh, We want it to be true that God came to live among us, to take away our sins, and to guarantee us that one day there is going to be an ending that's, that's happy. You know, we all have these deep longings deep inside of us for things to just be right with the world. We look around at the world and we know that it's wrong. We know that it's broken. We know that things don't go the way that they should go, but we've never had any other experience in our lifetime. Uh, in human experience, there's always a sad ending. You know, we, we have our happy moments in, throughout our lives. You have that moment where you get married, that moment where you have your baby, and, and you've got these great moments of joy But for all of us, eventually, there's a sad ending. Eventually, we start to lose the people that we love or we die ourselves. So we look at just our human experience and we say, there's no reason for us to believe that things will end in a happy way. But when Jesus Christ comes and speaks like he's the Messiah, people get the sense that all those deep down down longings that they have are there for a reason. They're there because there is a happy ending coming and because the Messiah is coming to rescue them and make everything good in the end. We've got this longing for things to go well. And this is why you tear up at dumb things like the office finale. You know, you, you, you watch this and you start to tear up and you're going, this is so dumb. This is a TV show. This, why, why would this strike some deep chord of emotion in me? I know that this isn't real. I know that life doesn't end with all happy endings. So, so why is it that I feel it so deeply when I see something as dumb as that? Um, why does it strike me so much? And the reason is because deep down, we were made for a real, true, happy ending. And deep down we know that for those of us who've trusted in Christ, there is a real and true and happy ending coming. But even though we don't see them in our human experience, we just know there should be one out there, and we have this sense that that's where we should be headed. Now, this is why we have these moments of emotion when we see beauty just show up in an ugly world, because we know that there should be true and universal beauty everywhere. And when we hear a story that goes well and captivates us and has that ending that's good, we just get this sense that, yes, that's the way things should be, even though we've never seen things be that way before. When you see that movie that's got that perfect ending, you get this deep down feeling that that's the way that life should be. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, these are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. So in all of our art, in all of our hopes, in all of our desires, in all of our emotions, we get this sense that there's this country out there that we know is there, but we've never visited it. And every once in a while, we just smell that flower that we've never actually held. We just get that taste of a country we've never been to. We just know it's out there. We know it's coming. And here's Jesus standing in front of these people, 
and they sense that that world has broken through into ours. They sense that the country that they're longing for but that they've never visited is right there and he's right in front of them. They get this sense that Jesus is the answer to all of our longings. That we know that the world is broken, but Jesus is the one who will set the world right. We know that we've got guilt, but he's the one who will come to lift our guilt and to free us from our sins. He is the something more that we all sense is out there. And we know there's something more, and we always have this sense in our lives that if I just get over this one next hill, that's where I'll be happy. If I just get to where I'm driving a better car, living in a better house, living in a better neighborhood, getting married, having kids, there's this one more thing, and if I can finally get to the top of that hill, that's where there will be joy. But we get to the tops of those hills, and we recognize that there isn't true and ultimate and soul-satisfying joy there. And the reason is because all of those things are really just echoes of a bigger joy. They're really just sense of a flower that we haven't held on to yet. But what we tend to do is we try to cram those things into our hearts and say those things should satisfy us. But our hearts end up being like these big black holes, and they can suck in the entire world and still not be satisfied, and still need more, and still be crying out for more. Here comes Jesus, and when he speaks in front of them, they recognize that he is more than a match for the black hole of their hearts, and they hear him gladly. You know, they're finally thinking, this Jesus, he is the one that everything is all about. It's all about him. He's the one we're longing for. He's the one we're missing. He's the one we're after. And when they hear him speak, their response is joy. So this is important because real Christianity, real discipleship, is about living a life in joyful response to Jesus. It's not about the rituals. It's not about the rules. It's about the person and work of Jesus. It's about living like Jesus is the Lord, like he is God who's always been around, like he is the preexistent one, like he is over everything that we do. It's living a life of loving, joyful, sacrificial, and sometimes even tearful following of Jesus Christ. That's what real Christianity Christianity is. But sometimes what happens is we look at Christianity from the outside, and we don't see that. We see Christians not living that way. We see people who are are living a kind of alternative to Christianity that's called the real thing. And when we see that, pretty often we want nothing to do with it. Today we'll be dedicating children, and the statistics for the number of our kids that continue to walk with Jesus after high school are alarming. Uh, where 80% of our kids are walking away from the faith after high school altogether and dropping it. And while some come back later in their 20s, Many of them decide that they don't want anything to do with Christianity. And this is despite the fact that churches in America today are spending more money on youth ministry than they ever have. We're more devoted to reaching out to teenagers and kids than we ever have been. But still our kids are growing up and they're walking away saying they don't want anything to do with it. And fairly often the reason for that is that they don't see the real thing. They see a decoy, but then when they see that up close, they know that it's not real and they don't want it. And that's the next thing that Jesus warns us about. Look at Mark 12, verse 38. It says, And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You know, that psalm that Jesus quoted uh, quoted from in Psalm 110 when he says that his people will clothe himself with righteousness and his people will give themselves freely to God, people thought that the people who were the most given to God were the scribes, 
They were the religious leaders. They were the guys who were wearing the long robes. They had the best clothes. They had the biggest smile. They were greeted the most in the marketplace. The people that everybody honored, the people that everybody loved because they were the professional Christian types. Those were the best ones. Those were the holy ones that were fully given to God. Jesus looks at them and he says, but do you know what they do when nobody's around? They devour widows' houses. And they've got this lifestyle, they've got this image, and to support it, they go to the widows and say, give everything you have to me. They take advantage of people so that they can be prominent, so that they can be lifted up, so that they can look awesome. And Jesus looks at them, and though everybody thought they were real, he looks at them and he says, that's pretend, it's fake, it's a show. Don't be like them. Now, this is huge because we tend to think that that's what real Christianity is. The phony baloney, I got everybody honoring me, everybody smiling, everybody thinking I'm a good guy. But Jesus says, I know the heart, and I know that what they are just isn't real. What they, they look at God, and they see a little glimpse of his glory, but then instead of worshiping God and giving him the glory he deserves and living a life like he's the Lord, they become their own lords. They make much of themselves. They give themselves the glory. It becomes all about them. And when we live a life that's all about us and not all about Jesus, it becomes a sickening substitute for the Savior. Um, when I was uh, in junior high, the bills were good, and um, <laughs> it, it was the last time. But um, I, I remember being at a wild card game, a uh, playoff game, and we were playing the Houston Oilers, and this was, I think, the third year that the bills went to the Super Bowl. And we, when we went, we were doing terribly. By we, I mean the bills. But we, we were doing... a. They were normally good, so you didn't see this all the time. But at the half, we were down something like 28 to 3. So it it actually was a lot like the Bills today. Um, If if you can picture the Bills today only in a playoff game, if your imagination can stretch that far. They're in a playoff game, and they were down bad. 28 to 3 at the half, and you're thinking, okay, maybe there will be a comeback after the half. The Bills come out, they kick off. The Oilers return the opening kick for a touchdown. And now we're down 35 to 3 after the half. Um, I wanted to go home, and so I'm begging my dad, like, okay, it's cold. It's it's time to go home. We don't want to be sitting out here anymore. And my dad said, no, we paid for these tickets. We're staying. (laughs) And so so I stayed there and and endured, and we had backup quarterback that day. Frank Reich was kind of leading the show. Jim Kelly was hurt. And then the Bills started scoring, and they didn't stop scoring, and they kept going and going and going. And then finally, they tied this thing up, and it goes into overtime. So we had been down 35-3 to at the half. Now it's tied. We go into overtime. And then finally, the last play of the game, the Bills kick the game-winning field goal in overtime. So I don't know if it's still the biggest comeback in, in playoff history, but it was amazing. It was by far the greatest worship experience that I've ever um, been part of. Um, problem is it was a false god down there we were worshiping. But everybody's standing up and screaming and cheering. Um, this is just this moment of amazement at what has just happened Could you imagine how inappropriate it would be for me in the middle of the chaos to pull on the shoulder of the guy next to me and say, this one time when I was in Little Loop football, I kicked a field goal. He would say, what's wrong with you? Like, did you you see what, who cares? Did you see this? Did you see what just happened down there? This was the real thing. This is a big deal. And you're talking about you and your little achievement? And here are these guys, these these religious leaders who catch a a glimpse of God, a glimpse of his glory. They know his word maybe better than anybody else, but then their lives become all about themselves. It's not about God and his glory and worshiping him and finding real joy there. It's attempting to find joy by making much out of who they are. 
And it's sickening for them, and it's sickening for all the people who are around them. And Jesus says to watch out for it. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 25. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So he says, guys, beware of the kind of religion that does these outward observances to get honor from other people. Beware the kind of acting that goes on among those religious leaders. Beware the kind of people who make themselves out to be the Savior when they can't save. You know, for them, following God meant being religious instead of making much of God. And Jesus said, that isn't the real thing. That's a decoy for the real thing. And Jesus is about to show them a better way. Uh, Jesus is not just all talk. In every way that they're fake, Jesus is going to show himself to be real and true. Now, Jesus doesn't wear the long, elaborate robes to impress people around him, but in a few hours, they're going to take the robes that Jesus does have, and they're going to tear them up and cast lots for them and hang him naked on a cross. Now, Jesus isn't going to sit in the high seats where everybody honors him, but he's about to sit for judgment before people who had no business judging them, no business judging him, so he could lay his life down for them. Jesus isn't going to have a place of honor out in public, but he's going to have a place of shame in public up on the cross being crucified for the sins of the world. And this is the king. This is the Messiah. The contrast between Jesus and phony religion couldn't be more clear. Empty religion makes a show and devours people. Jesus dies and gives life to people. Jesus is life-giving, laying down his life for his sheep. The religious people are there to fleece the flock and take what they can out of the sheep. And Jesus looks at all of it and he says, I see your heart. I see that it's not the real thing. This is a big deal for us uh, as parents. We, we want to teach our kids. We want our kids to turn out right. But fairly often the way that we want them to turn out is we want them to turn out right morally and only morally. You know, if they live a good, clean life, then that's okay with us. If they don't break the rules, they follow the commandments, they jump through all the right hoops, then we'll feel like we've been successful as parents. And morals are important. It's important to raise our kids to know the standards, know the law, know the commandments. But real Christianity isn't all about the things that we do. Real Christianity at its heart is all about Jesus. So the ultimate goal of parents should be trying to teach our kids not only to follow the law, but to know Jesus to know the gospel of Jesus, that yeah, they're supposed to do good works, but it's true that they've also fallen short and they can't do all the good works that they should do. And so they need a savior. They don't just need to, to start being good now and start behaving and follow the rules and not get disciplined anymore. They need a savior who will come and rescue them from their sins. They need to know Jesus Christ. So our job as parents is to, to teach them the rules, but far more than that, to teach them who their savior is to teach them about Jesus, to be an example to them. Yes, we need to try to do that as parents, but also to be an example of the gospel that says that we fall short, but Jesus saves us, which means that when we fall short in front of our kids, instead of trying to spin it and act like the religious leaders did, we confess our sins to them. 
We confess our weaknesses. We confess the ways that we haven't been the dad that we should be or the mom that we should be, the ways that we've fallen short, so that we can teach them that Jesus is the hero of their story, not us. Fairly often, we try to build a Christianity in front of our kids that makes us out to be the hero ultimate Christians. Let's try to live the exemplary lives we should, but let's take our kids and point them to the real Savior, Jesus. Because we could make people who are just like the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus said to beware of. They could be running around in our house. They could grow up and live good, clean lives and do all the things that they would do to make parents proud. But if they don't know Jesus Christ, then we haven't done our jobs. There was actually a study done. um, They've been kind of looking at the fact that so many of our kids are walking away from Christianity. And a study out of Notre Dame, a professor there, Christian uh, Christian Smith, did a study. and, And what he basically concluded is that there are two really big ingredients. Number one, parents. Parents, and and this is what he said, parents with a vibrant and lived out faith tend to have children who have and keep a vibrant lived out faith. Parents are huge, absolutely huge, nearly a necessary condition for a child to remain strong in his or her faith into young adulthood. And then he says, without question, the most important pastor a child will ever have in their life is a parent. You say, oh, well, then my kids are dead. Um, I've fallen short in so many ways. But actually, in his study, he said, no, that's actually not the case. Uh, Being a super Christian, being the kind of person who's plastic and fake and makes everything look like it's all right, is actually nauseating to the kids, and they run away. But being a real Christian who lives a gospel-centered faith that says, I've fallen short, but Jesus is good, even if you're totally normal and totally down to earth, that actually does more for the good of your kids than if you try to pretend in front of them. The second big ingredient, he said, was personal devotion. Teaching the kids not just to obey and follow the rules on the outside, but to spend time in the Word and love the Word of God. To spend time in prayer and develop the discipline so that they're getting to know not just a code that they follow, but getting to know Jesus. And so our job as parents is to lift up the gospel of Jesus in front of our kids, lift up Jesus, make him the hero, make him the savior. And when our kids see that, they actually have a better chance than not of continuing to walk with Jesus well after high school. So Jesus comes and he says that he's Lord and the multitudes receive him gladly. He points out a false alternative and says, don't be like that. And then he shows what real response, what real devotion to the lordship of Jesus should look like. Look at verse 41. It says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So there's this scene where people are coming and they're making a show of the big gifts that they're putting in the offering box. In another passage, Jesus said that sometimes they would blow a trumpet before they gave so that everybody would know that a large donation is about to be made. And they come and they're parading their gifts and it's amazing how much money they're putting in. It looks like real devotion. And then this poor widow comes up and she doesn't have anything. She doesn't have a husband. It looks like she's probably been abandoned by her kids because she doesn't have any resources. She has two half pennies. That's all she's got. She takes her half pennies, she puts them in the offering box, an amount of money that would have been pocket change for the rich people, an amount of money that probably made no difference for the operation of the temple, 
an amount that wouldn't have helped with the budget, wouldn't have uh, made anybody think that she's a really big player here in the life of the temple. But she gave all that she had, and Jesus looked at it, and he said, you know, that's a big deal. She's got nothing, and she gives what she has. She doesn't give out of her pocket change. He says she puts in there literally her very life, her bios. She puts in her life. Because of the sacrifice that this lady made, her life is about to change. She's probably going to miss meals. Her clothes are probably going to be more worn out than they could be. Her life would change because she put in all that she had. And even though nobody's impressed by that gift, Jesus, who looks at the heart, says, I'm impressed by it because that's the right response if Jesus Christ is Lord. Is to put in not just out of your margin, not just out of your pocket change, but to give your life, to give yourself. You know, for us, in, in all of our getting, giving, and not just our financial giving, but in the way that we serve, uh, the way that we're devoted, the way that we reach out to neighbors, the way that we help other people, we tend to give like the rich people in this story. We give out of what's extra. You know, if we have some spare time, we'll devote that to volunteering and serving somewhere. If we have some spare cash, we'll give that. We give out of what's extra, and it doesn't affect our lives too much when we give. Most of us don't give to the point where we have lives that are far more stressed because of our service to God. Whether it's our service here in church, our service out in the community, our service to our neighbors, whether it's our financial giving, we give out of what's extra, and we don't want to stress ourselves out. This lady gave in a way that gave herself. She didn't just give from the extra, but she gave deeply from her emotions, her time, her money. She gave in a different way than we tend to. And we can give some pretty big sums to God, but we can do it in a way that doesn't affect our lives at all. Most of us don't give to the point where we'll drive less of a car or live less of a life or have less of a vacation. We make sure we have all those things and then we give. Jesus says, if he's Lord, then we should recognize every resource we have is given to us by God to push back darkness around us. We should be worshipers who give to God our lives, who give him everything and live like he's really Lord, like he's really the son of David, like he's really the master. This woman, in real faith, gave everything that she was. But this presents a problem for us because our hearts don't want to do that. I mean, if we're honest, our hearts are pretty dominated by self-interest. They're dominated by protecting ourselves, guarding ourselves, making sure that nobody takes anything from us, making sure that we get lifted up. In fact, even the good things that we'll do, we'll do pretty often to be noticed by other people like those religious leaders did. By default, that's where our hearts are. We, we don't want to truly worship. We don't want to give ourselves to God. And the Bible says this. In Romans 3, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You say, yeah, but I've done good. Fairly often, the, the good that we do is tainted by self-interest. It's tainted by making much of ourselves and not making much of God. And that comes from a heart level. So how do we change our hearts? How do we change ourselves? Um, Jeremiah 13 says, can the leopard change his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? A leopard can't change his spots and we can't change who we are. We can't change who we are from a heart level. We can maybe, maybe dress it up. We can go from doing really bad things in self-interest to doing really good things in self-interest, but the self-interest, the sinfulness is still there. Well, there's one power that's given to us to change the heart. 
Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it says that there is power to change our hearts, to raise our dead hearts to life, to warm our icy hearts, and that power is the message of the gospel. It's the message that Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who is King, who is before all things, came and he gave all. Kind of like we see this widow giving all in the offering here. Jesus gave even more than she did. She gave her money. She gave her meals. She gave probably of her clothing. She gave of her life. She gave in a way that was sacrificial. But Jesus gave his life. He gave his whole by us. He, he laid down his life for us on the cross. He didn't just allow his household to be devoured like a widow's household was. He was devoured. He didn't just give his money. He gave his whole life. And in all the ways that we fail to be like the widow, he was like the widow for us. He gave himself. He gave himself fully. And what's really impressive about Jesus here is the way that he's got his opponents against the ropes. He's winning he, he can question them, and they can't answer his questions. He answers all of theirs. He could take them out, but in a couple hours, Jesus is going to drop his arms, and he's going to lose the fight. He's going to give himself to his opponents. He's going to give his, himself for his enemies. He's going to lay down his life for people who don't deserve it so that their hard hearts could be turned to hearts of flesh and could be changed. So the power for us to be changed, the power for our hearts to be changed so that we are focused on Jesus and worshipers of Jesus is not just working really hard and trying to obey, but is trusting in the gospel message, in Jesus Christ, who's the great Savior who came and gave himself for us. And when we believe that, when we believe that he is who he says he is, and don't just believe it in our minds, but on a heart level, trust him, our sins are wiped away. We're made right with God. And as we keep coming back to that gospel as the ultimate resource to change us and transform us, it does do the work of changing us into worshipers like the widow. Little by little, it does dissolve the self-interest because we become interested in Jesus. It dissolves the desire to worship ourselves because we know that worshiping Jesus is so much better that he's the real thing. And so the call to all of us is to turn from our sin, turn from our unbelief, but also to turn from our religious alternatives to Jesus. Turn from all of those and trust in Jesus Christ as the only true Savior. If we could, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, pretty often it's easy for our Christian lives to dissolve and, and fall apart into just the outward act. I go to church, I put money in, I serve in some ways, I go to a small group, and I do these things because they're the Christian things to do. Uh, those are the things you do as a Christian, and so, so I, I put in what I can, and I make the sacrifices that I can. But what Jesus has called us to is not that kind of, of empty living, but he's called us to living that has Jesus Christ at the very center. He's called us to living that has Jesus Christ at the heart of it. So the question for all of us is, do I have a relationship with Jesus that I'm living out regularly, or is it just outward observance? Am I like the widow who gives when, it does, when it's not a big deal to anybody else, when I don't get noticed for it? Or am I more like the scribe who gives when I get noticed and serve when I get noticed and, and live with total self-interest? Let's turn from our self-interest and turn to trust in Christ. And if you're here today 
and you're not a follower of Christ. A lot of times you look on and you say Christianity is just about following the rules. And here in this passage, Jesus warned against that kind of Christianity. He warned against the rules without relationship kind of faith. What Christianity says is that, yes, we should follow the rules. God had given his commandments, but we broke them. And because we broke them, we deserve God's judgment. We deserve hell. We deserve eternity apart from him. But at the heart of Christianity is not a call for us to go and start to observe those rules again. At the heart of Christianity is a savior who came and gave himself so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have everlasting life. So if you're here today and you recognize your sinfulness, you recognize that you deserve God's judgment, then turn from sin, turn from unbelief, and believe in Jesus. Believe that he died for you and that he was buried and that he rose again, that he gave his whole life, his whole bias, so that you could have life. Believe in him. Turn from sin and cry out to him. And the Bible promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So calling on him is not the matter of praying the words of a certain prayer. It's a matter of deeply from the heart, recognizing your sinfulness and brokenness and trusting in Jesus to forgive you. So you can cry out to him in whatever word you want. Say, God, I know how sinful I am. I know I deserve your judgment. But Lord, I'm going to turn from my sin and my unbelief and I'm going to trust in you, Jesus. I trust in your death and your burial and your resurrection for me. Forgive me. Change me and cleanse me. If that's the cry of your heart and not just words that you pray, he promises to do those things. He promises to forgive you and save you and cleanse you. He promises to be a savior to you. But once he does that, he doesn't throw you into a life of religious living and just trying really hard to keep rules. He throws you into a life where he's at the center so that obedience to those rules flows from it. So it's not just trying to white knuckle some obedience and get some of it to come out of your life. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you expose us. You expose the way that sometimes we live like the frauds do. We live a, a religious life and sometimes even a good, clean life that at its heart doesn't have you. And so, Lord, we turn from any living that looks like that and we turn to you. I pray that we would be Christ-centered people, gospel-centered people who love you and love your gospel more than anything. Uh, God, for the children that we're about to dedicate here, we pray that they would grow up to know you. Uh, more than anything for these kids. We want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray for these parents that you would help them to raise their kids to know Jesus Christ and to, to build a home that doesn't have perfection at its center, but has you at its center, Lord, the, the perfect one, not our perfect obedience. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you for the time that we have as a church family to celebrate these things. And I pray this in your name. Amen.